That's mocking. He's impure in his thoughts. He's immorally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of Lords. That's my king. I know you guys are thinking it's going to be a long sermon if he got up that quick. Hopefully it will not be. In fact, I think we got out earlier that we may be onto something. That may be the way to keep me from going long is to put me up first. The reason we're doing that today, hold on one second. I didn't realize I had gum in my mouth. That's disgusting, sorry. The reason we're doing that this morning is on purpose. Uh, why we're going to put worship at the end of service. Because as you know, we've been in the book of Colossians for the last several weeks, and, and this was meant to be preached before what we did last week. Obviously, if you were paying attention, we got a little bit out of order because of snow days and, and Josh. Uh, we wanted to give him a chance to preach, and he had already worked so hard on his message. I didn't want to like bump him or say, look, I'm going to preach that anyways later. So we went ahead and let him preach, and we wanted to come back to this text today. It's one of the great texts in the Bible about Christology. And when I say Christology, you know, biology, all the ologies on the end, the study of, right? So the study of God is theology. Christology is obviously the study of Christ. And this is one of the great texts in the Bible that tell us who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done. Much of what the book of Colossians was written for was to help give an understanding of uh, really uh, how to come against, I guess you could say, the false teachers that were in the church that were, were trying to split apart the church by their false teachings, the Gnostics. So we're going to get into that today, but as we look at this, it's a hymn. I want you to see that this was written in very poetic style, especially when you look at it in the Greek language. And many believe that this was a text that was sung within the early church of Jesus Christ. And so today, when you think about what is the application of what we're looking at in this chapter and in this text, I want you to see that this should stir praise in our hearts. This should give us confidence in the God that we serve. This should help us know that no matter what our world looks like, no matter how chaotic things have become, we serve a Savior who is not just the Creator. He's also the sustainer of the world. And not just the sustainer of the world, but He's the Savior of the world. And I want you to know that all things are good because God is still sitting on his throne. And so as we look at this text today, we're going to come back and we're going to worship at the end of this service. And, and we had a great time of worship first service. There were several folks that just prayed for rededication. They were praying for God to just move and to step into their lives and to step into their situations. And I just pray that you'll leave today encouraged and you'll leave worshipful. So Colossians chapter 1, we're looking at verse 15 this morning through verse 23. How many of y'all watched the movie Sandlot? You know, the baseball movie. It's one of the classic movies. If you haven't watched it, you really need to watch it. It's a, it's a great movie. And one of the major characters, and really the main character in there, his name was Smalls, right? 
And you guys remember uh, that Smalls had an issue in this movie. They, they came up against a dilemma because they spent all of their time in this baseball movie. These were teenagers. Uh, when they weren't in school, when they weren't swimming at the pool trying to catch a look at uh, Peppercorn or whatever her name was, uh, they were uh, basically out on the field playing baseball. And so the whole movie is kind of a baseball movie. And, and it came to this point in the movie where they lost one of the balls that they were playing with. And because they only had a couple balls, usually, if it was ever lost, if they hit a home run, there was this one yard that if they hit a home run into it, there was a dog back there. And you know how when you're a kid, everything looks much bigger. They thought this dog was a killer dog. They looked at it, they called it the beast. And nobody had the courage to jump over the fence to go get one of these lost balls. So when the ball was hit over, they were sitting there going, well, I guess today we're going to be done playing baseball. They're trying to figure out how to find some money for a new baseball. And Small steps up to the plate and he says, you know what, I've got a baseball. And he goes into his dad's or his stepdad's study. And if you remember the movie, he gets the ball and it shows that the ball has a name on it. And the name is Babe Ruth. So, of course, they go out and start playing baseball, and the first thing you know what's coming, the ball is knocked over the fence into that dog's yard. They've lost the ball, and if you remember, they started discussing because Smalls looks just like he's about to die. He looks like he doesn't know what he's going to do, and all his friends come around him, and they're like, what's the big deal about this baseball? And he goes, it's special to my dad. You don't understand. My dad's going to kill me. And he starts going through this whole thing. And they're like, well, who gave you the ball? What, what's so important about the ball? He says, I don't know. It's got some woman's name on it. And they said, what's the name? And he said, Baby Ruth. <laughs> and, of course, they're looking at him just, they don't know what to think. Or they don't even know what to say. And they're like, Baby Ruth? You mean Babe Ruth? And they start going through, if you've watched the movie, you know, they're like, you know, they start coming up with all these names for Babe Ruth and all of his friends are sitting there and they're going, you know, the Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, right? The Colossus of Clout, the Great Bambino. And you have this look on Small's face when he comes to the realization of whose name was on that ball. And he looks at him and says, you mean that's the same guy? I hope that's what happens as we look at Colossians today. That we will grow in an appreciation for who Jesus Christ is. Because for many in this room, you may have misunderstandings about Jesus. You may consider him a great philosopher, a great teacher. You may consider him to be maybe a good moral example to all of us. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ is so much more than that. And as we look at this today, I pray, I really do pray that we will end this service in great worship, in great praise as we come to grips with who Jesus Christ is. So let me read to you out of Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. I want you to listen to these words. It says, He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him 
and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which I proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now let me say this. Uh, we're probably going to get through Colossians in 11 weeks. We could spend 11 weeks on what I just read. This is rich. This stuff is deep, and I want you to pray this morning as we get moving through this that I can do it justice in the short time that we have together because this is an understanding that we must have of who Jesus Christ is. And so first this morning, I want us to look and understand that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, it's an important thing that we understand what he means here. That word image, that Christ is the image, it's the word icon in the Greek. I don't usually go through all the stuff with, you know, trying to help you spell and tell you all the Greek words, but it's, it's an easy one for us. Some of them I would say you wouldn't even know what I was saying. But icon, we get because icon in the Greek and icon in the English are very much the same. When I say the word icon in English, a lot of you immediately go to the photography company, right? Because an icon is an exact representation, right? So you take a photo of someone and that picture is supposed to come out and look like the other person. Back in this day, they wouldn't have thought photography because they didn't have photographs. Icon to them meant you took someone like a king and you would put his likeness onto something like a coin. It was meant to be that, you know what, we bear this image, and this, this image that we have is put on to something else. And when we think about likeness, when we think about this issue, we go back all the way to creation where it was said of us that we were made in the image and the likeness of God. When we see Jesus, I want you to understand that you see God. You see, we're not a good example of that anymore because the glory of God, the image of God, the likeness of God in many ways has been lost in us. It's not completely gone, but it's like it's been shattered. It's like a glass that's in a million pieces, a mirror that once could you know, reflect rightly the image and the picture that it was meant to reflect. Now it's been completely shattered and you just get bits and pieces. That's kind of how we live as believers today. But that is not true of Jesus Christ. When we talk about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, that God that we cannot see, when we see Jesus, guess what? We see him. Now that is very important. I read a story once about a mother who basically was walking with her child one day, and as the child was walking, the little boy looked up into the sky, and he asked his mother, is God up there? She assured him that certainly God is up there, and the young man simply replied to his mother, wouldn't it be nice if he would put his head out of the clouds and let us see him? Well, all of us feel like that. 
All of us in the depths of who we are, we wonder, what is God truly like? Well, listen, we have an answer to that question. Because Jesus brings clarity to the question of what is God like? If God were walking the earth, what would he be like? Look no further than Jesus. How would God respond to a woman caught in adultery? You want to know how he might would respond? Look no further than Jesus. When you want to know, would God love this broken world and broken humanity? Look no further than Jesus who said that God so loves the world, he's given me to you so that you might be restored to him. You see, the reality is this. When it says that he is the image of the invisible God, we have to wrestle with the fact that what Jesus is literally saying is that he shares, and he, probably the better word is that he manifests God's nature. He reveals God's nature. It's a beautiful truth for us to realize that God isn't hiding, he's revealing. That God isn't covering And in making mystery, he is unraveling the mystery of who he is in his son. When we look at Jesus, he is the very nature of God. He has the attributes of God. If you wonder how powerful God is, if God wants to stop storms, what did Jesus show us? That he speaks and nature listens. If we wonder, is God the God who can cure disease? Jesus showed us that with a word, yes, he can. Can God, through his power, raise the dead? You see, all of those questions begin to get answered in Jesus. Does does God know what I think? What's the answer to that? What did Jesus show us? Yeah, how many times were people thinking something and Jesus said, why are you thinking? And then he started talking to them about what they were thinking. We see Jesus manifesting the nature, the attributes, the character of God, and suddenly the visible or the invisible becomes visible. And he perfectly reveals to us who God is. And not just who God is, but I want you to also think about the depth of this statement that he is the image of the invisible God. And here is God in flesh showing us what it really looked like to be in the garden, what Adam was meant to be. And if that's what Adam was meant to be, then guess what that means for us? He's showing us perfect humanity too. How we should live, how we should think, how we should act, how we should talk, how we should care for other people. And we are reminded once again that well, uh, while we lost that likeness and that image and and its purity in the garden, I want you to remember what salvation really means for us. That not only is he going to forgive us of our sin, but what is he going to do? He's going to restore what we lost. And the sanctification that we now live in is God looking at us and giving us an example, this is who I created you to be. And he makes us in the likeness and image of his son. We're conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. To see Jesus is to see God. 
I love the question, or the, really it was a statement that the Apostle Philip made. We don't know a lot about Philip. He doesn't speak a whole lot in the Scriptures. We don't have near as many words as from others like Simon Peter and John or whoever else. But Philip did say something that was very important. He was standing before Jesus one day, and it's recorded in John 14. And he said to Jesus, if you will just show us the Father, then that will be enough. If you're from God, if you're the Messiah, if you're the anointed one, if you're the Savior, then just show us the Father. And he says, that will be enough for me. And Jesus' answer is very important. He looked at Philip, and what did he say? Philip, if you have seen me, then you've seen the Father. To see Jesus is to see God, not simply a sketch of God or a summary of God or some little lifeless portrait of Him, but He perfectly, in every way, represents God to men in a form that we can see and we can know and we can understand. Secondly, not only is Christ the image of the invisible God, but look at what he goes on saying. It continues, uh, we started there in verse 15, and it goes on and says, not only is he the image of the invisible God, but secondly, Christ is our creator and our sustainer. See, there was a lot of discussion about who Jesus was in the Colossian church. The Gnostics, the false teachers, they were trying to say that, you know what, there's no way that Jesus can be God in human flesh because they believed that any type of matter was evil. They, they had come, sorry, they had come to the conclusion that all matter is evil and all matter is, is somehow bad. And so they looked at Jesus and they said, how could Jesus, being God, come and take on human form so they would deny the humanity of Jesus? Well, listen, he had to be human he had to be man because he had to conquer sin as a man. For him not to be human means that he could not be the one representing humanity on the cross to find us forgiveness of our sins, to give us what we needed the most, salvation. These Gnostics were actually teaching that, you know what, God had nothing to do with creation, not the true God. They tried to teach things like, you know, there was God, you know, originally as he was, but then there were these emanations or these other gods that he kind of created. And because mankind couldn't deal with God because man is matter and man is evil. And, and so they came up with all these ideas that, you know, the God of the Old Testament was another type of God. And Jesus was another type of God. And, and so what they started to do was they started to actually take away even the most basic understanding we have in the Bible, which is in the beginning, what? God, what did he do? He created the heavens and the earth. They were debating and arguing over whether or not God created the heavens and the earth, and Paul was going to go so far as to say, listen, you are misunderstanding what the Scripture says about who this Jesus is. Not only is he human and divine, understand he's 100% human, he's 100% divine. He is so divine that he is the one, when it says that God created the heavens and the earth, he's about to say it was Jesus that he was referring to. Look at how it says it says he's the firstborn. In this translation, the NASB, which I don't think is the best one in this case, which is rarely so. I really love the NASB, but it's not the best translation in this case. 
It says he's the firstborn of all creation. The problem is, in English, what does that mean to us? It looks like what we're saying is that he was the first to be created. Well, listen, if he's God, then he was never created. That is not what this means. That word, and, and sometimes, again, not understanding the languages that this comes out of, when we look at the Greek and we look at it, him being the firstborn of all creation, there's two things about the word firstborn, and the context denotes which of these definitions that it is. Now, we do that in English as well. Firstborn can mean in time and space, meaning that if I had three brothers, I might say my brother Charlie is the firstborn because he was literally the one who was born first. But firstborn can also mean not in time and space, but it can also mean in priority. That the firstborn is the one who is priority. Now, in normal terms, in, the, in Jewish understanding, the firstborn son, he was important, right? He was the one that was viewed above the other sons because the blessing was going to go to him. But there are times in Scripture where we find the firstborn son did not receive the blessing. Go back to Esau and Jacob. If you remember, Esau was the oldest. He was the one that was supposed to get the blessing, but the blessing ended up going to Jacob. And even though he wasn't the firstborn, the Bible actually refers to him as the firstborn. Why? Because literally the blessing, the promise, the priority of what God was going to do through this family was put not on Esau, but on Jacob. And when we talk about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, let me tell you what it's basically saying. He is supreme over creation. It's more of a title. The understanding of that firstborn has more to do with the importance of Jesus over all creation. That's why I think the NIV, which I rarely say, I think is the best translation of this text, of this verse, because I think it gets it right in English in a way that we can understand it. He is the firstborn in priority over all creation. He stands above it all. Why? Because he created it all. When you go back and see all that the Scripture is trying to tell us about this issue of creation and about this issue of Jesus' role in creation, you don't have to go back very far because you can look at John chapter 1 and you can see in the beginning was the Word. This is talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. God has no beginning. God has no end. He was in the beginning with God. Do you hear those words? All things... Now, let me give you a little Greek language study on that one. All means what in English? See, your scholars. Look at that. <laughs> All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing that came into being that has come into being. You see what it's saying there? That he is the uncreated one. Everything. If it's been created, it was created by him. And he has not been created. He has always Ben, and I believe that's exactly the point that he's making in these verses, because here again in verse 16, that's exactly what he states. For by him, all things, if it was created, who created it? He did. In the heavens, on earth, things that are visible, meaning what we can see, the solar systems, the stars, everything else. And he says those things that are invisible, the things that we can't see, the spiritual realms, the spiritual world, both angels, both demons. He said, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So what does it mean when we say that Christ is our Creator and Sustainer? It means He's supreme over creation. Why? Because everything was made, here's the points, by Him. All things were created. That's what the text says. That by Him... All things were created. This is true of things in heaven, things on earth, things seen, things unseen, all angels, all rulers, everything, everyone, everywhere. And I want you to think about what that means for you. The Bible says that out of all creation, you are the crown of creation because in you, he put the likeness and image of God. He built you for a relationship with Him. You're not an accident. We aren't just people who are going through life and we've descended and and evolved from nothing. We were created with design. How many times in the Bible does it say to us over and over that God knit us together in our mother's wombs, that before we had our first day, He had numbered and planned out all of our days. Let that sink in what it means when it says that he is creator of all things. And we come to understand that that includes us. And what are the purposes and the plans that he has for us? Knowing who he is as creator, made in the image of the invisible God, it ought to calm us down when we get anxious. Because it goes on and says, not only were things by him, all things were created, but for him, all things were created for him. That is to say that creation was created to be his. When you think about your life, I want you to think of the blessing and the glory of saying, I am his. I have a creator who loves me, who sees me, who made me just the way I am and purposed things for me in his glory and his, his power and his majesty. I get to worship him. He is my God and I am his child. Let that sink in a second. You were created for God's glory. To bring Him worship, to bring Him honor, to bring Him praise with your lips and the way that you live. To go to the ends of the earth showing people this. This is a picture of what God's love looks like, God's patience looks like, God's kindness looks like. You see, all of creation was created for him. I love what the Bible says in places like Psalm 19. It says that all creation, guess what it's doing? It's bringing glory to God. It says, in fact, if we won't worship, then guess what will happen? Those rocks will cry out. Because the heavens, doesn't that what it says? They declare God's glory. That's why you walk outside and you see this beautiful, amazing sunrise or sunset And your instincts as a believer, you you don't say, wow, what a nice little accident that happened. You say, wow, God, look at your handiwork. Look at your power. Look at the beauty with which you create. And I wish you would learn to see yourselves in that. 
beyond the sunset, beyond the sunrise, who did I say was the crown of creation? Us. We have the chance to worship. It was created for him that he might be worshiped and loved, that he might receive honor and that it might bring him joy. Not only by him and for him, but lastly, it simply states that in him all things hold together. That's what it says in verse 17. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's another way of saying that he sustains everything in this universe. You say, what application could that possibly have to me today? Listen to what I said again. He controls and he sustains everything in the entire universe that has ever been created. We, listen, we have technology, we have science. We still can't get to the end of creation, can we? Space just keeps going and it just keeps going and there are unnumbered planets, systems, you can't count all the things that happen in you in one day, probably in one hour, probably in one minute. And to think that he sustains not just me, but everybody else in this room, but everybody else in this world, in every planet, in every solar system, all across the vastness of space, there is not one thing that happens that isn't under his control. And let me say again, that includes you. Learn to rest in that. Our God is sovereign, utter, complete control, and He loves us. If those two things are true, what do we have to fear? He sustains it all. That means he has our beginning. He has everything in between. He has the end. He holds the world together. So let me ask you the question. If he is the one that keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos... If he will do that for everything else, you think he won't do that for us? His plans are good, church. His purposes are glorious, church. It leads us to the third point that not only is Christ the image of the invisible God, he is our creator and our sustainer, but boy, if all those others are true, then that means one thing that he is our Lord, he's our king. Jesus is God and He's worthy of our worship and He's worthy of our praise. And it goes on and it changes because it goes from talking about creation to the church in verse 18. And He says, I also want you to know this. He is, and notice all the He is, He is, He is. He says, He is also the head of the body. That is the church. Let me ask you a question. What happens if we lose our head? Nothing. You don't see without it. 
You won't, your body won't be guided without it. All the nerve systems that are going to tell your body what to do, they're all in the head, right? Your brain is there. Without it, there is no life. It is central to everything else about the body. And I want you to think about what it means when it says that he is the head of the body, the church. This church and every church that exists is powerless without Jesus Christ. Amen. And I don't want you to lose sight. Again, I, I, let me say it because we, we, you're thinking I mean institution. You're thinking I mean Hepzibah in the sense of buildings and programs. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me. I'm talking about the fact that Jesus said, I am the vine. And guess what? You're the branches. If we get disconnected from the vine, what's guaranteed to happen? We're going to die. He says, if you're connected to me and you're in me, then guess what? You will bear fruit. But if you get apart from me, you can do nothing. Think about what it means when he says that he is the head of the body. He is the one who guides the church. It is his bidding that the church lives by and it's in his words that we move and live and have our being without him the church cannot think the truth it cannot act correctly it cannot even decide its own direction you see part of being saved is understanding that jesus christ is either lord of all or he's lord of nothing When you say, I confess Jesus to be Lord of my life, I think most Christians, they don't understand what they're saying when they say that. They just don't grasp it. If we use the term boss, if we use the term king, if we use the term master and slave, understand that it's the master who decides. We're there to obey. We're there for their good pleasure. I mean, most of us, we don't want to think in terms like that. Listen, you say, this is my life. No, Jesus says, actually, now it's mine because you were bought with a price. I shed my blood for you. And you think to yourself, what kind of selfish God demands my life? Listen, he is not taking your life to destroy it. He's not taking your life to shortchange you or to somehow benefit himself. What he's doing is he's taking your life. He's putting it back together, fixing all the broken pieces, healing you, showing you how to live, giving you the power to live, and then he's giving you back your life. And you will live like you've never lived before. We think if I make someone Lord over me that somehow I lose. I can assure you, when Jesus is Lord of you, you win. Amen. If you will honor, obey, follow, listen to his voice. But church, we live in an age where most Christians, they don't live like Jesus is Lord. We say it, but we don't mean it. And remember, the danger... Of that is that one day we may stand before Jesus like in Matthew 7 and we're going to say, Lord, Lord, 
And he's going to say, I never knew you. You worker of iniquity. You know why he's going to say he never knew you? He's going to say, you never listened to my voice. You say I was Lord, but you never did anything that I asked you to do. Your house was built on sand. You heard me, but you didn't obey me. Let that sink in. What we mean when we say Jesus is Lord. He's the head of the body. The church, we're the church. It says that he is the beginning. The head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he himself may come to have what? First place in everything. He is first in everything. He holds first place in our life. Not a prominent place, the preeminent place. It says that he is the beginning. That means the source of something. The moving power with which something operates. You see, it says, and what we've already learned is that the world is the creation of Christ and the church is the new creation of Christ. Christ is the source of the church's life and He continues to be the director of her activity. How did He gain this place? Well, number one, He's God. Number two, remember He humbled Himself did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, right? But he humbled himself and took on the likeness of man. He became like us. He took on flesh, right? And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that one who was humble, it says that God did what with him? He highly exalted him. And now this one is Lord over all. At the name of Jesus, what? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess under heaven, on earth, under the earth that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. You can say it now or you can say it then. It's too late then. He is Lord, He is the beginning, and He is gloriously resurrected. Christ is not merely someone who lived and died and of whom we read and learn. Because of the resurrection, we serve a Savior that is alive. Revealing Himself, He can be known. We can have a relationship with Him. He's alive forevermore. And we can meet Him and experience Him. He's not a dead hero. He's not a past founder of some religion. But He is a living presence. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is his title that he is the supreme Lord. That he has conquered every opposing power. And there is nothing in life or in death which can stop him or bind him. That's the Christ that we serve. And as if that isn't enough, he is, he is, he is, he is, he is, right? It's about to shift. And he's about to say, let's talk about you.
Because Christ is our Savior. And what does he have to say about that? Well, in verse 19 it begins, for it is or was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, meaning that he's the fullness of God. We've already talked about that. And listen to what it says. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. So who started salvation? God did. Whose idea was salvation? It was God's idea. Would you be saved if he hadn't been the first mover? No. Who's running and who's hiding and who's seeking and who's finding? You see, we're the ones running. We're the ones hiding. We're the ones shaking our fist at God. And all the while, He's pursuing us with relentless grace and kindness and mercy and love. It says he is reconciling all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated, and here's where he starts saying you. Listen to the story of what he's saying. He says, you. Let's talk about you. We've talked about who I am. Let's talk about you. You were alienated, it said. Separated from God in your sin, the glory of God so diminished in you, the image of God, the likeness of God almost gone in you. And he found you there and you were alienated from him. You didn't have any peace. It says that you were hostile in mind, meaning that all you thought about was how you could live the way you wanted to live and you didn't care about God. I want life my way. I want to do what I want to do. I'm in it for my glory. I don't have to answer to anyone. We're hostile in mind to the things of God. He tells us what's right and what's good, and we're hostile to those things. Don't you see it in our culture today? It's not just disagreement. It's hostility. Persecution is coming, church. We're about to find out. You think COVID is the great sifter of who's committed to the church? Wait till persecution comes. Wait till it starts to cost you something. To say, the Bible says, thus saith the Lord. To take a stand in culture. It's coming, church, and it's going to... It's going to lay an axe to that which is dead in the church. He says, man, without Christ, you're separated. You're hostile to the things of God. He says, you're engaged in evil deeds. I mean, you see how when he starts talking about us, you see the difference? And if it stopped there, woe is us. But aren't you glad he doesn't stop there? Because he's already said, you know what, I've reconciled everything to myself. It's Jesus saying on the cross, it is finished. I've done what is necessary for man to have the opportunity by faith to be saved, to be made right with God, not to be alienated, but to, be, to become children of God. 
Not to be hostile in mind anymore, but to take on the mind of Christ and to live for God and to live for others and to live for yourself last, if at all. And those evil deeds, he says, you know what? You become my workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. You see what the gospel did? You see how it flipped it all upside down for us? Who we were compared to what Jesus says that we now are. And he says to us, yet, thank goodness, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order. Because see, here's what's happened now. You were alienated, you were hostile in mind, you were engaged in evil deeds. And look at what he says now. Now, because I've reconciled you, I've brought peace to you through Jesus Christ, through the cross. He says, now I can present you. And listen to these. Holy. Blameless. Above reproach. Let me run through these real quick for you. We're talking about reconciliation. We say that Christ is our Savior. He has reconciled us, that we were at war with Him. He's brought peace through His blood because of the cross. So let's look at a few things really fast, the need for reconciliation. You know why we need reconciliation? Because of what we just read. We are alienated. We are far from God. Engaged in evil deeds. All the things that we talked about. Jesus Christ came to heal the breach, the distance, and to bridge the chasm between God and in man, and aren't you glad he did it? Amen. The plan for reconciliation is right here in this text. That it was through his blood, the cross. The cross is the proof that there is no length to which God loves you and will go to in order to win your heart, to forgive your sins. And folks, I'm going to tell you, a love like that demands an answer. And today, what is concerning me the most is that if the cross of Christ if it won't awaken your heart with love for Jesus Christ, then I don't know what will. That He suffered, that He died, that God who could have condemned you chose to die in your place to take your sins upon Himself to be buried, he rose again in life so that you could live, so that you could defeat death, so that you could live a life worthy of honor and glory, so that you again would be conformed into the image and likeness of his son and come back to that place you were created for to glorify God. If the cross and his death and his suffering doesn't move you, I don't have a clue what will. Because that is his plan for reconciling and redeeming us. What is the scope of reconciliation? It's not even just our lives, it's the whole world. Isn't that beautiful? He's going to make all things new one day, isn't he? It says that the world is groaning right now in sin, our sin. <laughs> the worst day in history was in Genesis 3. When mankind chose to be God themselves. 
and to say they didn't need him. It threw everything into chaos. Disaster, disease, depression, anything and everything. Death that hurts and wounds and makes us weep. All of it was brought in on that day and it didn't just affect, it didn't just affect us. When the earth flooded, it didn't just kill the people. It killed all those animals too. Creation groans with us in this great need to be saved. And he's reconciled us and the earth. And he's going to make it all new. And so what is the aim of reconciliation? He says it right here, holiness. Christ carried out his sacrificial work of reconciliation so that he could present us to God holy. I don't know if you're getting it. I hope you are. I'm going to stand before God one day, and so are you. I'm not going to stand before Him and say, God, you owe me. God, give me what I deserve. I've tried to live for you. Here's my church record. Here's my giving record. Here's my mission trip record. Here's my baptism paper. Here's all the things that I did for you. Listen, I I ain't going to bring none of that up. I'm not going to convince them I'm good. I'm not going to convince them that I'm righteous. I'm going to stand there with the keen awareness that the only reason he hasn't already condemned me and destroyed me is because I stand there under the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. I know what I am without Him. But I'm going to stand there one day in complete confidence that when God looks at me, He is going to see Jesus. Now think about that. The righteousness of Jesus. The cross, He took my sin. But on the cross, I also got his righteousness. So when I stand there, listen, there's no other way God can present me to the Father holy, blameless, and above reproach. I am none of those things without him. I'm none of those things without his death, without the cross, without the transaction that took place there on that day where he paid the price for my sin. And I got all of his righteousness. And when I stand before Jesus, he is going to see himself. When I stand before God, he's going to see his son. And all of that was given to me by faith. Believing God, trusting God that I can't, but he can. The aim of reconciliation is holiness, righteousness, to make us what we are intended to be so that we might stand before God, the God who cannot look on sin. Well, guess what? He won't have to see any because Jesus paid it all. And so what is the outcome of our reconciliation? It's in 23. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith Firmly established, again, most times in the New Testament, if is since, in English, best understood as since. Here's what I want you to know as a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're really a Christian, let me tell you what you will do. You will persevere. 
It doesn't mean that the journey doesn't have ups and downs. It doesn't mean that you won't have struggles in your life. But it does mean this, that what God started, God finishes. That He who began a good work in you, He is faithful to complete it. The reason I can say you will persevere is not because of you. You aren't the reason you're saved. You're also not going to be the reason you're changed. It's a work of God in you. It's a new nature that's been given to you. It's the heart transplant that you needed that if it was up to your old dead heart, you'd still be dead. But he gave you a new heart. New desires, new affections. And you know what he says about believers? He says we can stand fast in the faith. And listen, this is, this is the beauty. And we never have to abandon hope. Some of you in here today, you have abandoned hope. That you can change. That Christ can save you. That your marriage can be reconciled. That your kids can return home. That your parents can be saved. That your friends can be saved. That your situation can change. You've given up hope. And listen, Jesus is saying, I did all of this for you. Why? So that you can stand fast. Firm. No matter what comes against you, firm. You never have to lose hope. Firm. It demands that through the sunshine and through the shadows, we never lose confidence in the love and the power of God. And out of this reconciliation, you know what should come to the hearts of believers is unshakable loyalty and unconquerable hope. So as musicians come this morning, I want you to go back to something I said earlier. I said it quickly. You may have missed it. At the end of all this, you know what the real question is for most of us as believers in this room? Is Christ going to be a part of my life? Preeminent in my life. Folks, that's the age that we are living in today that the church needs to answer. COVID has shown us one thing. A lot of people that sat in this place two years ago have found that, you know what? We didn't do Jesus for three weeks and I'm fine without him. Or actually, I found that, you know what? There are other things that seem to bring me more happiness in the moment. They'll be back when it crashes. But you know why that happens and how that happens? It's because we give Jesus a part of our life. We've not let him be our life. Where everything is by him and for him and through him, right? Meaning us.
So maybe some of you are here today and you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You realize that when I say Lord, I'm talking about something vastly different than you meant. Will you make Jesus Lord of your life today? It begins with seeking forgiveness. It begins with turning away from sin. It, it means that you have to place your faith in Jesus that I can't save myself. My sins will condemn me. If I stand before you right now without Jesus, I'll be rightfully punished and condemned. But your son died for me. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And I believe his promise that he can give me life. Not just forgiveness, life. And so today, Jesus, I make you Lord. And I'm going to say yes. When you speak, I'm going to say yes. My life's a blank check, Jesus. Fill it in. Do what you want with it. Use it all up. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And if you've never received Christ, I hope that as we worship here in a moment, we're going to sing songs, we're going to pray. I hope that you will take this moment right where you are and you will ask him to forgive you. Tell him you believe in him and that you want him to be Lord and King of your life. Surrender your life to Jesus. And I promise you, you will lose nothing. You will gain everything. In church, we got to make a decision today. I got to be honest, as a pastor, the wishy-washiness of today's church is driving me nuts. I can't teach. I can't do this. I can't do that because I got this and I got that. Folks, we were created for so much more. We have this life. To use it for the kingdom of God. You want rest? It will come in eternity. While the sun is up, we labor. And some of you have got to quit making Jesus part. And you've got to give him first place. You've got to make him all. Because if he's not everything, then he's nothing. And that's the truth. Father, we just we want to sing praises to you today. God, we consider all that you've done and all that you are. And Lord, this life that you've called us to live... It happens just as we surrender, Lord. It's not something that we figure out and we do in and of ourselves. We just believe you. We trust you. We say yes to you. We prioritize our lives, Lord, the way that you've asked us to. We say yes. Lord, you want to undo the curse. And that curse still has a hold on so many. God, give us courage to live out our faith and to share it with others. And God, give someone in this room today the courage to pray and receive you as Lord and Savior. They have been kicking. They have been fighting. They've been resisting. I pray that today they will try surrendering. That they'll stop fighting. And they'll trust you. And believe you and pray that you would change their eternity starting with right now. So, Father, in this moment as we sing and worship together, Lord, as I'm up front, if someone needs prayer, may they just come find me right on that front row, worshiping. I'll pray with them. Lord, this altar is open. We've got time to pray and worship today. May people have the courage to get real and get open and get honest before you. 
Lord, may the words of these songs penetrate our hearts. May your word convict us, Lord, and don't let us leave the presence of your love unchanged. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That's my king. He's enduringly strong. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king.